church, if you would stand or stay on your feet, um, stay on your feet for just one, one moment. And the scripture reading today is, uh, comes from Isaiah uh, 49 and then as well, uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter five. If you're ready for the word, say I'm ready. So what it says in Isaiah 49, this is the prophetic declaration of Isaiah the prophet um, regarding a servant who would come, who would serve God's people, would do the work in God's people uh, for the purpose of God's salvation. It says this in Isaiah 49.1, listen to me, all you in distant lands, pay attention, you who are far away. The Lord called me before my birth from within the womb. He called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. I replied, but my work seems so useless. I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose, yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. He says, this is what he says, you will do more than restore. Somebody say restore. You'll do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light. Somebody say light. A light to the Gentiles, to the nations, and you will bring my salvation. Somebody say salvation salvation to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 5, 14, it says, you are, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. As you grab your seat today, look at somebody and tell them the title of my sermon. It's this, you are the light. Tell them, you are the light. You are the light. You are the light. Well, church, we are in a season uh, for a few weeks. We do this every November where we, we pause and we come together. We rally around a vision, a vision we believe that God has for our church in this season, in this year, our fiscal year. And we come together for a few weeks in November and we press into this and we look at what it would mean for us to pursue the vision that God has for us and for this house. The, the word for our, uh, our vision for this fiscal year is the word reach. Somebody say reach. Last week we talked about how we are not retreaters, we are Reachers. We're not retreaters, we are reachers. And we believe that there is a great opportunity for us to reach our city, for us to be light in darkness, for us to shine brightly for the world to see a world that is dark, a world that is hopeless, a world that is troubled, a world that is struggling an opportunity for us to reach, to be a light in a dark place. And so um, we are stepping into that today in this emphasis of reach. And in addition to that, as we talk about vision in this season, one thing that is always accompanying a vision emphasis is what we call a faith initiative. And we're praying and we're asking that God would raise the temperature of our faith that God would raise the temperature of your faith, that you would believe God for bigger things, that you would believe God for who he is, that you would step into what God has for you and that faith would well up in us as a body and that we would be people that just don't sit in seats, 
But we'd be people that walk in faith, believing God for what he wants to do in our homes, in our families, in our world, in our city. And so we're asking, believing God for faith to rise up. And then we express that through what we call a faith initiative, which is a few things at the end of the year that we, we, we want to do, we need to do. They're key components to the church and to the kingdom. And so we want to press into these things. There's three categories for our family, for our city, for our world. Last week, we emphasized for our family what we need for this house. Today, we're going to be emphasizing for our city. You're going to see a video at the end today to talk about for our city. And then we're, next week, we're going to be talking about for our world and what it looks like for us to, uh, to do this um, for our world. And then um, in the first Sunday of December, we're asking everyone that calls the Bridge Church home to make a one-time financial contribution uh, to this faith initiative that will allow us to do the things that we believe God has called us to do. And the total um, goal for that is $355,000 that we're believing God and asking God to supply um, in this season. I was thinking about this this week um, as I was preparing for this, and God brought to mind, you know, it's, a, it's interesting, this annual offering that we do, um, in addition to just our regular giving that we give, but this annual offering, and God brought to mind all the offerings that the nation of Israel uh, participated in on an annual basis. By the way, do you know how many annual offerings that the Lord required of his people uh, back, back in the old, it was at least a dozen, if not more. Aren't you glad <laughs> that we don't have a dozen special offerings? It is just one. Somebody say amen in the house. We got one, and this, I, I, this, is, this is, you know, I am unapologetic about calling you to, to give sacrificially at the end of the year as we think about Christmas, as we think about the close of a season, to really make sure that our hearts are invested in the right place. Uh, to make sure that we're being a part of the real reason for Christmas, which is seeing the, the mission of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus come. So uh, we give um, uh, extravagantly and radically to this. My whole family participates in this now. My oldest, Nora, who's 10 years old, she just had her a birthday last month, and she got a lot of cash this year because she turned 10 for whatever reason. Everybody was like the, de dealing some cash out to her for her birthday. And, um, and she said, Daddy, um, man, for the faith initiative, I want to be a part of that. And so... Um, she's taking like a significant portion of the cash that she got from her birthday and she's giving it to the faith initiative. And so I just that we can all contribute and we can all participate in, in some way. And I believe that through this, we're going to we're really going to see uh, the kingdom of God advance. So this is a season and we're believing God. And this is a season where we're going to we're going to reach. Don't we need to reach our city church? Don't we need to reach people? Don't we need to be a, a light in, in a dark place? And so we can do that. And we've been called to do that. And so today, what I would love to do is talk about how we can function as a light in a dark place and what that will mean, what that will require of us, and the opportunity that lies ahead of us if we can walk in the light. Somebody say, you are the light. You are the light. Now, let me set up this context for you. I'm going to go kind of broad biblical context, and then I'm going to go immediate context for the chapter where we, in, where we are in Isaiah. From a broad perspective, you need to recognize that the story of human history or the way that you should think about human history, the way that you should think about what scripture has um, shared about the way that history has functioned and operated is that God, there is one God. There is the one true God. He is the maker. He is the creator. He created all that there is. He created us. He fashioned us. It was his idea. The universe was his idea. Humanity was his idea. Male and female was his idea. 
He made a humanity that were supposed to uh, honor him and glorify him in the way that they would live and the way that they would worship and the way that they would operate under God's rule. If you read back to our early first parents, Adam and Eve, they were deceived by God's adversary, Satan. And they chose rather to kind of be their own God and resist God and try to function as their own gods. And the result of that obviously is tragic, where there was a separation of the relationship between God and humanity. And now a holy God cannot exist in close proximity or close relationship with an unholy creation. That's why we experience death. That's why we experience brokenness. That's why we experience fractured relationships. That's why um, when things sit in your refrigerator too long, what happens? They devolve. It doesn't get better. They don't automatically turn into a better state. The, the state of things in our world is a state of devolving. It's a state of deteriorating. That's why you don't look the same as what you used to look like. Um, that, that's why we experience death. That's, and, and, and just so you know, that's not the way that things are supposed to be. Um, that's not the way that things are supposed to be. And our God had a plan because he loves you, because he loves humanity, because he loves his creation to come and to rescue and to set things right. Aren't you glad that we've got a God who's in the business of making things right? Yeah. And he came and he pursued humanity. And this is God's strategy. The way that God were, was going to accomplish this is that of the entire creation of all humanity, he would take a people and he would take a man and he, Abraham, he would form a people, a new people with a new identity. They would be a new nation. They would be a new kingdom. And this nation would operate under God um, as their leader, as their king. And they would function out of what he says and the way that life should flourish, the way that life should, should go. And then those people would be a light to the nations. They would be a demonstration community to the world of what it's like to know God and actually live according to the way that God would have us to live. Now the immediate context. In this passage, in this situation, God's people are at a place where they're pretty hopeless. They're desperate. They're, things haven't planned out the way that they wanted it to go. They look at their own themselves and then they look at their role and they look at the world and it, it seems hopeless. It doesn't seem like anybody's gonna change. It doesn't seem like the world is ever gonna change. It, it's, it's, it's tragic. And, and here God sends a prophetic message through Isaiah of a servant. We would find out that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant who would come for his people and he would do the work in them to help spiritual formation, to help them become who they should become so that they could do what he wants them to do. How many of you know that before God will do a work through you, he needs to do a work in you? And some of you are in a situation right now. Some of you are facing some things and you're walking through some things and God is doing a work in you. He's molding you. He's shaping you. He's doing the work of spiritual formation because he's got to do something in you in order to be able to do something through you. It doesn't mean that God uses perfect people, but it means that God uses people who are in process, who are in progress, who are in. And so what, what is I just feel led to say, what is it that that thing that you're going through today? What is it that thing that you're facing? What is that, that thing that you that God is doing the work in you? He's doing the work in you so that he can do the work 
through you. And this is what we see of our passage today in Isaiah 59. And I love what um, the, Isaiah the prophet says in verse 6, which is kind of our key verse for today. It's, it says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Three components that I want to point out from this one verse today. He says, um, you will do um, the work of restoration and even more than the work of restoration. Once you have done the work of restoration, uh, number two, you will do the work of uh, declaration, which is being a light. And then number three, we will accomplish the work of salvation. So follow with me. God's first going to do the work of restoration in his people. Restoration, what does that mean? It means to restore. It means to bring things back. It means to bring things back into wholeness. He's going to do that for his people. His people haven't always done a great job at that. We don't always do a great job at that, but God's going to give them an opportunity to be restored. Aren't you grateful that God has given you an opportunity to be restored back to him? He's going to do the work of restoration, number one, so that his people can be a light. They can be prepared for declaration, which is the second part that he says. You're going to be a light to the nations. And then he says for part number three, so that I can do the work of salvation. I want, to, I want you to see how this is connected. In order for God to do the kind of work that he wants to do in the world, which we would call salvation. Salvation means um, in every Religion and ideology has their own form of salvation. They may not call it that, but it is essentially how to arrive at the kind of life that you want to live. How to arrive at salvation, whatever. In scripture, in, in Christianity, salvation means being connected back to God, being restored to him, to, to know God, um, to walk with him, to be in right relationship with him, to be a part of his kingdom. In order for God to do the work of salvation, he's going to use the means of declaration Somebody's got to declare it. Somebody's got to show it. Somebody's got to reveal it. But before he can do the work of declaration, he's got to do the work of restoration. Is anybody with me in the house? If you're not with me, we can stay here until you, you're with me. Um, but if you're, you're with me, we can move forward. Can we move forward? We, we can move forward. So God's, here, here's, here's the whole point. I think a lot of times when we think about reaching, and this is, I'll just do dirt road, just as basic as I can get. I think a lot of times when we think about reaching, we think about the the main thing or the only thing that we think about is, is maybe sending somebody out, you know, somewhere far, far away to, to, do, to do the reaching. And that's part of it. Sometimes we may think of a church leader or somebody, it's kind of their job and their responsibility. They need to, they need to teach. They need to preach. They need to evangelize. They, they need to do whatever. What I want us to understand today is that one of the greatest ways that we will reach the city and the region, the area of the world that God has put us in is when we operate as light. When we function as light, when we walk in alignment with what God would want us to do, how God would want us to live, I think that is one of the most strongest components of being able to reach the place where God has sent us. And so here, here, here's what I'll say it this way. Christ's restoration positions our declaration for the world's salvation. That's how it works. And so we're going to be walking in restoration. Christ is doing the work of restoration, bringing us back to him. We're going to live that out in the light, walking as the light. And then we're going to see the watching world recognize something different about us and actually want to know what we have. I love the way that Isaiah 61 through 3 would, would, would say, would read it. It'd say this, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen 
on you. How powerful is that? And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Somebody say, you are the light. You are the light. Here, let me mention a couple things and uh, kind of points that I want to anchor um, before we get on to the rest of it. It's this. Here's the first thing. How we live speaks loudly to the world. How we live speaks loudly to the world. And here's what you may or may not understand or recognize is that the world is watching you. The world is watching us. Um, and we don't, the church doesn't operate in some kind of like silo or some kind of bubble. What we do, what we say, how we function, how we, the watching world, or the, the world is watching us. So just, just, just by the way. So for instance, COVID-19, COVID-19, political chaos, mask, anti-mask, I mean, you name it. Part of my heart as a pastor and our leadership as well is that we would try to operate in such a way through the pandemic that, so that the watching world would know that we actually love them, okay? So if there is an opportunity for me to function in some kind of way as a church so that it will be obvious to the world that we love them and that we care about them, that's a no-brainer for me. So for instance, regardless of, you know, they just, New Hanover County just lifted the mask mandate on, on Friday and we're, we're, we're uh, walking in alignment with, with the guidelines as we have been. But part of our heart is, through this whole, whole deal is, we don't want the church to be like over here operating and functioning in such a way that it may look like we don't care about the safety and the well-being of the people that are around us. It, if, 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 a, if a mask like helps us communicate to the, to, to the city that we love them, no brainer. That, 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 that's an easy one. Jesus said, take up your cross. I can do a mask all day long, you know? And, and so we, we have to, the, the world is watching us the world is watching what we're doing. Uh, we can't hide that. When, you know, what you do gets viewed. What you do gets viewed, you know, what, what, what we do. And, and we want to make sure that we're operating and living in, in such a way where um, uh, the world recognizes that we, we love them. We actually care about people, um, even not only our, our body, but those who are outside our body. And our lifestyle and the way that we live is one of the most powerful. It's one of the most powerful means of salvation to the world. Yes, we speak the gospel, but then also by the way that we live, our actions demonstrate light to the watching world. I'll say it this way. The church is the demonstration community of the kingdom of God. So we are the demonstration community of the kingdom of God. If somebody says, what is God like? What does the kingdom of God look like? What should heaven look like? It shouldn't be very hard. They should just look to the church and say, wow, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. The challenge is that we're not perfect. The challenge is that the church hasn't always done a good job of being a demonstration community for the kingdom of God. Um, you, you know, and rather than, rather than live according to maybe what God's standards would be, we've uh, let, let maybe a political party hijack that or a denominational preference or a we are the demonstration community of the kingdom of God. And the way that we live and the way that we operate and the way that we function will be um, light um, to the watching world. So here's, now here, here's, here's what I want to do. 
Uh, we're living in an interesting moment in our culture and our society. Uh, what many are saying and what I've shared with you um, many times is that we're living in a post-Christian society. And the short way to understand that is that um, Christian norms or biblical norms uh, no longer uh, gain you social status in our culture. Uh, the more that you adhere to biblical standards or to God's ways or commandments or whatever the scripture requires of us, the more that you are aligned with that, uh, the less you're going to be aligned often with the culture at large, which means we're living in a post-Christian um, society. And being a Christian and saying you're a Christian isn't going to gain you hardly any social status at work or in your neighborhood or anywhere else. Uh, Tim Keller has written something, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, who's been a longtime pastor in Manhattan. I consider him uh, an incredibly godly man. I consider him a great leader for this day. I even consider him almost like an apostolic voice for the church, for the way that we should think about how to reach our culture. Last year, he came out with a book um, that's titled How to Reach the West Again. How to reach the West again, and his concept and his idea is that we have uh, we're not reaching um, our it's post-Christian. Uh, what, what does it look like for us to reach the society and the culture that we are? And love his book. One of the main things I love about his book is it's free. It's free. It's online. Um, you can Google it. How to reach the West again? Uh, short little read. Extremely helpful. Extremely good. Now I love what um, he says and some things that he breaks down in his book. And I'm going to use some of his things of what he says as like a helpful kind of um, guideline for the way that we think about how are we light? What would it look like for us to be light right now? What would it look like for us to be light for our neighbors, for our city, for our world? What, what would that actually look like? And he does a great job of actually expand, expounding on what it would like. A couple of things that he points out is he says that in the, in the first few centuries in the Roman Empire, which was not Christian at all, Christianity was a small, minority, marginalized religion that in the first few centuries was actually oppressed. It was persecuted there's no social status that being a Christian would, would give you. But Christianity exploded in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire after the time of Christ. And he point, one of the things he points out is he says that at least upwards of 80%, and he quotes Michael Green on this, upwards of 80% of the evangelism or the reaching that happened in the first few centuries didn't happen through any church leaders. It happened actually through church members. And, and he points out that um, believers actually living out the, the tenets of Christianity, um, the values and the principles of following Jesus, living those out among relationships and in their own spheres actually was attractive to the people around them and was what drew people into the Christian faith because of the distinct, unique principles. And so um, some of the things that um, that, uh, that he, he point out, um, he actually quotes Larry Hurtado, his book, Destroyer of the Gods. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but, but it's interesting. He points out a few things that were really unique about this early church in the first few centuries after the time of Jesus. The first thing that he says is that this early church was multiracial and multiethnic. In the first century, you typically inherited your religion. You were typically born into your religion, and you were typically, because you were born into it, meant that your own social class was typically connected to that religion or that idea. Christianity was revolutionary because it came onto the scene and said, a Christianity isn't something that you're born into, it's something that you have a faith experience in. 
that you meet God and it doesn't matter what your social status is or your tribe or your family, everybody um, gets entrance and access to uh, Christianity through faith. And this was, this was shocking. This was completely revolutionary for these early, um, th- these, this early Roman Empire. In addition to that, um, Larry Hurtado points out that the, the church was also um, radically committed to the poor and the marginalized. It would have been common in the first century and in that period of time that you would have helped your family members, that you would have helped perhaps those who were in your own tribe, but to help people that were outside of your family or outside of your tribe was just, was just radical. You, you just, there's no reason, there was no merit that wouldn't gain you anything in society. Why would you ever do that? Well, the Christians come along and they are known for radically caring for the poor and the marginalized, even whether or not they are a part of their faith family or their religious community. It's interesting, the Emperor Julian, he's even famously quoted saying that these radical Christians, they care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And so you've got this radical commitment to the poor and the marginalized. Additionally, he says the early Christians were revolutionary because they were nonviolent. They were nonviolent and they were non-retaliatory and they were committed to forgiveness. And so if you attacked a Christian or you killed a Christian, they did not organize a retaliation or seek revenge. And so it's famous that many of the early church martyrs were drug into the Colosseums and drug into stadiums and were literally eaten alive by lions. And Christians were known by not responding and not fighting back to their persecutors, but even in the midst of their death and their killing, praying for their persecutors and asking forgiveness on their part. This was radical in the first century. In addition to that, uh, he would say that they were strongly against infanticide strongly against the devaluing of human life. And so what was common in the first century is, is and, and, uh, n- not wanting um, unborn children was, was often the case. And so um, they didn't have the technology of, of, of abortion and some things that we have in our day, but um, many babies were unwanted. And so what the solution was is you would just literally discard the baby, throw the baby into the local trash heap, and a, a few things would happen. Either the baby would die, um, obviously of lack of care and starvation, or um, the slave trade would come in and get the babies and bring those, raise those babies up into the slave trade, human trafficking, sex trafficking, all those kinds of things. Or the Christian community was known for walking the streets at night and finding babies that were crying, bringing them into their own homes and raising them up in the community and the family of God. And it was absolutely radical that these early Christians would do something like this. And then the last thing that Hurtado says was extremely revolutionary about these early Christians was their their radical sexual ethic, their radical sexual ethic. And what was known and what was common in the first century is that um, sexuality was really um, just merely an appetite. It was something that you just experienced. It was just something that you sought pleasure in. It was just something that you did. And so what was common in the first century, you would have um, women or wives who were only allowed to have sexual relations with their husband, but husbands were allowed in their culture to have sexual relations, not only with their wife, with their spouse, but with, with anyone, with those who were not their spouse. As well, there were many house servants or those who would be um, slaves or house servants in, in, in a dwelling place or in a home. And it was very common for a man to have sexual relationships with any child, boy or girl or other, other, other people in, in the home. And the, the sexual appetite was just 
was, 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 was wild. I mean, it was, it was anything could go. And that's why you see in lots of the scripture passages in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul and others are condemning things like orgies, um, things like other sexual relationships that are outside of God's design for marriage. So what would happen is that the Christians came along and they actually had a view of sexuality that wasn't for taking advantage of other people, but was actually the expression of a covenant relationship. Uh, and, and so in the Christian community, sexuality was expressed only in um, a, a, a covenant between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship, the way that God designed it to be. And that was absolutely radical. And the reason why it was revolutionary is because people found in the Christian community, they found value, especially women. They found value because they were no longer treated like their bodies were just something to be taken advantage of, but they were treated as image bearers of God with value and dignity. And then sexuality was expressed through a covenant relationship with fidelity and commitment and beauty. And Hurtado says that these things were radical and revolutionary for uh, the early church and the Roman Empire. Now, here's, here's what I love about what, what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says, if we're going to reach our society, if we're really going to be light in a darkness, if we're going to be a, a testament of who God is and what he is like, if we're really going to exemplify this as a Christian community, as a kingdom community, he, he says that it will require us to function in at least five ways that we have to be intentional about that are expressions of what God commands and designs of us. I love this. Here's the first thing that he says of the characteristics necessary for the church today. Number one, he says, guess what? Building a multi-ethnic church. He, he, he says if we're going to, to reach a society that's multi-ethnic, a society that's even growing more and more multi-ethnic, if we're actually going to do a good job at that, we have to, especially in context where there is diversity, create churches that are multi-ethnic. And I read that and just wanted to run around the house and praise God and say hallelujah. I mean, I was like, thank God that somebody else is saying this. It, it, it's, it's true. If we really want to be a, a, a kingdom community that demonstrates light into a culture and a world that's divided along lines of race and other things, we've got to demonstrate that we've got to do this. I love what he says this, and I, I quote him. Tim Keller says this, in a world divided by tribe and race, there is no greater witness to the power of the gospel. My thank God. He says, if local congregations are willing to be culturally flexible and not set on one tradition in stone or sentimentalize a nostalgic, historic way of doing things, churches can exhibit more of the gospel's power to unite people across cultural barriers. And all God's people said, amen. 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 We can do that. I mean, imagine an America where the church was not divided along racial lines. Imagine a church in America that was unified. along. Imagine if you looked at the church in America and it was the place that everybody was welcome and everybody was valued and everybody came together. It would, be, it would be amazing. He, he says we've got to be building a multi-ethnic church. Here's number two. He says we have to have a commitment to the poor and justice. He says it's important for us to get this relationship right of not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. Not just speaking things and teaching things and having our doctrine and those things which are important, but walking it out in society, walking it out in a just fashion. And he says, justice must not replace evangelism, but on the other hand, it must not simply be a means to the end of evangelism. We're to love our neighbors, sacrificially doing good for them, regardless of their beliefs. Pursuing justice, then he says, is not to be ignored. And in order for churches to 
follow a biblical understanding of justice, it's important to know what biblical justice is not. And it's critical for us to avoid simplistic or reductionistic versions of the political right or the political left. But that we have to have a view and a form of justice of what, is, what does the Bible say justice is. And we're going to be walking this out as a church, honestly. And we don't have that completely figured out, but we're, we're pursuing that. We're going to be walking that out together. He says this, number three. He says, leading in civility, peacemaking, and bridge building. I like that word bridge, by the way. He, he, he says, we're going to, he, he's a leading. Somebody say leading. Leading, leading in civility. Leading in peacemaking. Leading in bridge building. He says the church has got to become a pioneer in this area. The church has, has a great opportunity to, mod, to model civility to a, to a generation that desperately needs it. And so therefore, we're going to walk in forgiveness. We're not going to walk in retaliation, but we're going to walk in reconciliation. And we're even going to say no to ourselves in order to build bridges, in order to get into someone else's shoes, to experience, to try to hear and listen to their lived experience. And we're going to try to build bridges, not, not build walls. And we're going to walk out peacemaking and bridge building together. And he even says this. He says it means knowing the role of individual Christians in politics, avoiding the illusion of pietism and the error of partisanship. And just by the way, no political party completely fully demonstrates the kingdom of God, just for the record. And if you tie yourself to a political party, you're not going to end up where God wants us to end up. But rather, we've got to figure out what's the kingdom party, what's the kingdom agenda, and I'm going to submit everything else to that and function out of that. Then he says this, um, number four, he says a whole life commitment to the Imago Dei, a whole life commitment to the Imago Dei, which means that the Bible's teachings on the image of God, which is that all humans are made and created in the image of God that we all bear the unique image of God in and of ourselves, regardless of our age, regardless of our gender, regardless of our ethnicity. We all bear the image of God. And he says human life exists, and we have to make sure that we champion human life from the womb to the tomb. It's, it's all of life. And he said the early church's pro-life stance was radically practical and not just political. It was committed to the whole lives of unwanted infants. And many early Christians not only risked their lives to save the vulnerable, but also used their homes and resources to support the vulnerable with love and family throughout their entire lives. Which, by the way, those in our church who are committed to fostering and adoption and loving uh, people and loving women and, and children, can we put our hands together for those people who are actually doing the work? They're actually doing the work. They're doing the work. They're, they're giving their lives. They're giving their dollars. And it's not easy. Ask somebody. It isn't easy to foster. It isn't easy to adopt. It's, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. It's challenging. It's, it's hard. Uh, but this is the work. This is the work of making sure that we're practically actually living out this aspect of the kingdom and valuing all people who are made in the image of God. And he says that means figuring out how to practically live and or provide support for children, for, for women in desperate situations who need help for uh, families and for others. And then he, and then he says this is, is number five, is this, he says, becoming a sexual counterculture. What he means by that is the way that we think about sex and the way that we function 
in sexuality as a church, as the people of God, would become a counterculture for the world at large. And one of the greatest objections to Christianity today is what some would say is an outdated sexual ethic. And many would even believe that the Christian view or the Christian version of sexuality is unhealthy and it's oppressive, it's judgmental, it's so on and so forth. But you have to recognize that in the first century, um, what Christianity taught and what Christianity provided on the on the topic of sexuality actually was revolutionary and radical and br brought great healing to people. It great, brought great healing to communities and to marriages and, and to families. It, it, it did a, a, a revolutionary work, the Christian sexual ethic. And it would actually change the game literally for history on the way that people would think about sex being consensual and the way that sex shouldn't be used for abusive reason, reasons. But this is something that should be expressed to, to value people and to cherish people in a, in a relationship that's a covenant relationship that is committed. And so you need to, you need to know and to recognize that the, the scripture's view of sex is not a lower view of sex, it's a higher view of sex. It's a higher view of sex that the way that God has designed the world, the way that God has created and operated for us to function in this way is necessary. And, and here's, here, here's what that means. Um, our, often our views and our teachings on even the topic of sexuality aren't going to be um, even acceptable to maybe friends, culture, whoever it is. But it's important that we walk out what Scripture demands and commands of us because it's actually going to be light in the end uh, to a world that desperately needs to see the light. I love what, um, I love what uh, Tim Keller says. Is he says, in order for the church to create a, a sexual counterculture in its lived community, it needs to be a place where, first, all persons refrain from sex before marriage. Not only sexual intercourse, but also pornography and other forms of sexual pleasure. Here's what that means. God's design and God's command and God's expectation is that our sexuality should be expressed in the confines of a marriage relationship, a one flesh relationship, a covenant between a man and a woman for life. And God's design for that sexual expression, I would argue, and the scriptures would argue, is actually the best form of sexual intimacy there is. And you, you, can, you, can, you can try everything else. You can go down other roads. But this is, this is it's honestly, it's the best, and it's the way that it was meant to be designed. And so there's, this, is, this is a gut check for us. In, in what ways are maybe you walking out other forms of, sexual expression that are outside what God's design would be for your life, whether that's pornography, whether that's a sexual addiction, whether that's emotional attraction to someone that isn't your spouse. Maybe it's trying some things out before you've actually made a covenant to someone. See, if, if we're gonna be real and if we're gonna be um, true about what Jesus commands and what Jesus expects of us, it's gonna require us to to walk this out in what he acts and expects us to do. He says as well, the church has to be a place where a marriage partner is pursued not on the basis of looks and wealth, but on character. That this is a, this is a family we're forming, that this is a covenant that we're, we're forming. This, this isn't having a good time, this is having a good legacy. He says the church also has to be a place where those who are unmarried or pursuing a life of singleness, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, where those people are valued and equal in the church and incorporated as extended family member, members, which I say amen to, which means if you're single, that's not an inferior form of life. 
If you're single, Jesus was even single. Many of the church leaders were single. That's actually a great calling that you can have on your life is to pursue a life of singleness. He also says that the church has to be a place where those with same-sex attraction are valued members and are given the support for their calling to chastity, calling to what Jesus has asked them, called them to do, and, and, and that we're not um, treating people differently because of one kind of sexual orientation or one kind of sexual preference, but rather we're all asking all people to, be, to walk in line with Jesus and what Jesus commands of us. And then he says as well, a place where those who have struggled with issues of sex and gender are welcomed and listened to with humility, patience, and love. Now, all of those things are like their own sermon series. Um, and I just understandably just did a drive-by on those. But here, here's, here's what I want us to, to recognize, church, is that we can walk and what Christ expects of us and what Christ demands of us. We can walk in holiness. We can walk in righteousness. We can demonstrate unity. We can demonstrate reconciliation. We, we can ex express forgiveness. Uh, we can express love. We can express chastity. And we can express self-control. And when we operate in the way that God would want us to operate... Um, we can be the light that God wants us to be. Now, here's, here's what's happening right now. Um, some of you are hearing that list, and you're like, man, I got like three or four strikes on that list. I'm like, not doing good. And, and you, you, can, you can feel a sense of condemnation today. You can feel a sense of guilt. Uh, you, you can feel a sense of inadequacy. And here's, here would be the, the opportunity for you today. It's to repent. It's to repent because it's in repentance that God does the work of restoration. So here's the thing, you addicted to porn today? Repent, repent, come back to the Lord. He can do a work of restoration in you. You're struggling with something else, not, not living a certain way that we would see that Jesus would expect us to live, you can repent. Yeah, I love it, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Repentance, I gotta, we gotta, I gotta repent every day. I'm turning away from the things that are not of God. I'm turning away from the, the mindsets that are not of God. I'm turning away from the practices that are not of God, and I'm turning back to God, and I'm letting him do the work of restoration. Because what happens when God does the work of restoration in us? We then become a demonstration through the work of restoration, which ultimately will accomplish the salvation of the world. I'll close like this. Um, Matthew 5, 14 and 16, Jesus would say to his followers, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Church, we're going to be a light. Uh, we're going to reach the city that God has called us to reach. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to be in process we're going to be in progress following Jesus, learning what it means to follow him and to live according to him, and we're going to reach our city. And so today we want to uh, encourage and, and highlight an aspect of uh, this season through our faith initiative, what it's going to look like for us to be for our city, things that we can do, the things that we can let our light shine, the places in our city, organizations and schools and uh, different opportunities that we have. And in so doing, I believe will help us position, position us better. Uh, to reach our city. So if you would, uh, turn your attention to the screen and look at For Our City. 
Here at The Bridge, we end every year with a special season of faith. We believe it's important to set aside time to align our hearts with God's mission in the world and to respond in faith to what he's calling us to do. Each year we do this through a special offering called the Faith Initiative. It's an intentional way we can take a radical step of faith together and join God in his mission here in Wilmington and around the world. We believe God's resources for God's kingdom reside in God's people. That means you and me. That means the provision is in the people. That's why our generosity fuels the kingdom of God and advances his mission here in our city and around the world. As we end 2021, we are inviting everyone at the bridge to make a one-time financial offering above and beyond your regular giving to this faith initiative to see the kingdom of God come here and now. This year's faith initiative will allow us to impact the kingdom of God in three areas. For our family, for our city, for our world. For our city is the area where we get to give directly to the kingdom of God through serving in our city and region. We love Wilmington and we want to see heaven come here. We want this city to have a taste of what heaven is like. We get to see this happen directly in four ways. Serve the city. These are events that happen throughout the year where we invest thousands of dollars into our city through practical service. Mercy Ministries. Every year we serve hundreds of persons of need who turn to the church to look for help. And we want to continue to meet the needs of the least of these in our city. Local schools. We partner with the most underprivileged schools in our city to support them and make a kingdom impact. Local organizations. This year we get to support and fund several organizations like Vigilant Hope, Lifeline Pregnancy Center, One Christian Network, This Whole Life Foundation, Cape Fear Network of Baptist Churches. And lastly, we want to be a church that is prepared to meet specific needs that arrive in our community. This year, we plan to set aside funds for community needs and relief as they arise throughout the year. We want to be a church that is well prepared to support local churches, organizations, and communities as urgent needs arrive. The current financial need for our city is $75,000. In order for all of this to happen, it will take resources. Altogether, including the three categories for our family, for our city, and for our world, our total need is $355,000. We believe there is no limit to what God can do. There is no limit to what God can do through you. There is no better investment in the world than the kingdom of God. There is no better place to invest your life, invest your energy, and invest your dollars than God's kingdom. Every hour, every gift, every dollar impacts our family, our city, and our world. Church, now is the time to step out in faith.